Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. Hi and welcome to another business design jam where we take a look at interesting business design examples and see how they're relevant to the work of designers and business designers. In this episode, I jam with Franz, who is a longtime friend and also a business designer based in Vienna. So in this episode, we talked about a few interesting examples that we found in our research or our work. And one of them, for example, is IKEA and why they're selling $1 hot dogs at their checkout counters. It's a really interesting question because it feels like those hot dogs are underpriced. So we went into psychology of why the company is doing that. We also talked about SoulCycle, which is a really interesting and successful uh, fitness industry company based in US. And we take a look at how the founders did a really good job of designing not just the things for customers, but also for their employees, for their suppliers, and how this gave them a really sustainable competitive advantage. And we also talk about co-creation or co-design, which is basically creating a product together with a customer, not just testing it with them at the end. So we talk about these and more examples with Franz. And actually, Franz is also joining the DMBA team as a mentor in the upcoming DMBA intake, which is just around the corner. It's starting on February 24th. And just today, we opened the early applications for the next DMBA. So if you're interested in joining or learning more about the online MBA for designers, you can check out more on beyondusers.com slash DMBA. And if you want to apply, you can just head over to beyondusers.com slash apply. And now without further ado, here is a business design jam with Franz. So the first thing I prepared, the first topic I wanted to talk about today is using empathy, not just towards users, which is what we designers mostly do. You know, we go with our empathy and use it towards potential users or customers. Um, But there is another way to do it. You know, you can use the same empathy also towards other stakeholders in the company or other stakeholders in our uh, business model. And this can generate a lot of additional value for end users, for business, for suppliers, for all the people, right? Absolutely. So I actually have two examples here I wanted to share. And um, one is positive and one maybe shows how, y- you know, you can do it wrong also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe let's start with a positive one just to see w- what I'm talking about. So have you heard of the company called SoulCycle Fronts? Yes, I have. Yeah. So for those who haven't, it's basically... Uh, a titan of a fitness industry. So they started in 2006 in New York with uh, just one basic like indoor cycling workout. It's really intense. It combines some like motivational coaching and high energy music. And um, now it's grown to more than or around 100 studios in, in uh, around the world and more than 1,000 employees. And one interesting thing that I found out in their story, so I listened to a few podcasts with the founders and also read a few interviews because I find the whole story very, very interesting, is that one of the things they've done in the beginning when they were creating a business model is that they didn't just focus on the customers, but they also spent a lot of time designing the backend, the backend being their suppliers. And what I mean by this... Exactly, right? So if you think about the regular fitness gym, the back end is the instructors. Yeah. The people, the gym instructors, the people basically helping you 
um, run the classes and stuff. And the usual problem with them is that they're freelancers. They come into your gym and they just work like maybe they have two classes in your gym in the morning and then they have to travel to the other side of the city and then they have their two gym uh, two classes and then they have to travel to maybe private lessons. Yeah. Meaning, I think that's also how yoga studios work. Yeah. Like a lot of I think, different gyms work like this. Meaning that these instructors actually, you know, then don't have a, a basically a paid vacation. They don't have uh, health insurance. They're not well paid because they lose a lot of time in commuting. And maybe most importantly is they don't have a place to call their own home. Right? So everybody is a freelancer on their own. And what these founders of SoulCycle have geniusly done is they looked at the backend, so their suppliers, and they changed this thing. So they basically hired these instructors full-time. They gave them health insurance, paid vacation. They paid them better than they would be paid on the free market. And what this created was really important, right? So it created, it went from just creating employees to creating like brand ambassadors. And for yeah. SoulCycle, this was super important because it's like it helped them grow so much. The word of mouth was so much better. And all of those things just made them really propelled forward much better. Okay. So when I look at their website, it actually does not feel as if they were employees. They are. That's what you're saying. Yes. I mean, they're not freelancers as in uh, being freelancers, you know, when you just yeah. hire somebody to come and do two yoga classes. Yeah. Okay. Because it really seems that they are like, they are standalone figures. They're real, um, like they really present them well and not as if they were like an employee. Yeah, exactly. I think that that was also a conscious decision from their side was we're not just going to give you a job, but we're going to also push you to the forefront. We're going to yeah. make you sort of celebrities. Yeah, right. it really feels like this. Like when you watch their website, it feels like they put them actually to the window and really put them in the forefront of everything and really emphasize their, their quality and what they do for you. It's really nice, actually. Like, yeah. if you go on the website, you can see exactly uh, what kind of music they're listening to, because a lot of the experience inside the Soul Cycle classes is based on the music, right? So you, you see if you actually like the music that this instructor has, uh, etc. Right? So you can mm -hmm. get to know this person before you sign sign up for their classes, mm -hmm. um, and I think this drives a lot of uh, loyalty, also. Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're trying to say is that by not only looking at your users, um, you create more value for your users. Exactly. Right. Okay. Because sometimes if you are squeezing your supplier on the back end, yeah. let's say you are creating t-shirts, right? And you know, you can sell your t-shirt for X amount And you, you cannot increase your price. So you try to decrease your costs and then you go to your supplier and you try to squeeze them for price. And sometimes you can actually succeed, quote unquote, succeed because you can lower the price. But yeah. then actually, you know, supplier also thinks to themselves, look, I'm not going to give you as good of quality as I did before. Yeah. Maybe you're buying fibers or whatever. I don't know, the cotton yeah. or whatever. And then you actually also lose on the forefront with the customer because they see you have a worse quality. Yeah, absolutely. 
that's there, exactly what happened to uh, the second example I wanted to share. But yeah, go right. ahead if you had anything to share. <laughs> no, just um, the example that you provided, like squeezing your suppliers, just remembered me of uh, a lot of projects that we had um, in my former company, Lead. So when we're talking to suppliers, actually, the ones who had different companies along the value chain until the customer, that's what we would be saying to them a lot um, in terms of, hey, you do not only have to have your, your users um, in focus when creating a new product, but what about um, thinking about everybody in between? And by thinking of somebody in between, let's say it's a supplier, uh, let's say it's a, it's, a, um, it's a reseller. If you focus on them and really create value on them, for them, they will basically push your product even more than they would push any other supplier, which would also help you be successful at the users. So even exactly. downstream, if you are a product company, um, if, you're, uh, if you have companies downstream your value chain until the customer, it's really worth the thought um, for which other uh, stakeholders you could design. Exactly, right? Because if you can create something of a tremendous value on the back end to suppliers, right? You could be creating a competitive advantage that's not that, it's not a competitive advantage that your competitors can see right away. Yeah. And this makes it even more sustainable, even stronger. Because I guess, I mean, right now there is plenty of these spinning uh, classes, uh, of similar classes like Soul Cycle, right? Yeah. And what I do is they copy the, the, the thing on the, basically their features, right? It's a small room. They put yeah. in 30 to 40 bikes. They have instructors, but they cannot really, you know, copy everything on the back end. Like this relationship yeah. they have with instructors, this, uh, uh, this emotion they create by these people being really happy in the room and really giving you uh, everything when they're running these classes. That these are the intangibles that, you know, yeah. designers really love, but they don't come just from the, you know, the customer, they can also come from the back with your suppliers. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe to show you what, what, what happens if you don't do a good job of that. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a startup that probably most of you haven't heard of. It's called HomeJoy. So they actually founded in 2010 in Silicon Valley with a very grand vision. So let me maybe just quickly read you this vision. So HomeJoy believes that everyone deserves a happy home. With just a few clicks, HomeJoy's online platform will match you with a screened, background-checked, and certified professional cleaner who maintains high customer ratings. And at $20 per hour, HomeJoy makes a sparkling home and affordable reality for everyone. Very nice vision, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so basically, it was a startup that uh, it was a platform connecting homeowners or just people who rented homes also with home cleaners. So what happened there? <laughs> Do you, can you predict what happened there, Franz? So from turning around the example that you brought before, I would say that they squeezed their suppliers. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at it, if you offer a service like this for $20, you are basically positioning yourself also as the cheap option. So yeah. you need to find cheap suppliers, basically, right? And one way that you can do that is by either squeezing suppliers or 
making your suppliers compete against each other. Yeah. So you say, okay, the one with the best price will win, right? And that's one thing they've done. So they basically had this uh, platform where different uh, professional cleaning suppliers could bid against each other, and okay. that didn't really work out well. So another thing they did was they they did the same thing as Uber. So didn't they didn't hire professional cleaners mm-hmm. because that's too expensive, right? They basically had freelancers cleaning for for them. Okay. The problem with this creates so having freelancers cleaning your home is that a lot of people who joined uh, the platform they've never cleaned um, before, right? So they were they weren't professional cleaners. But yeah. Homejoy was not allowed to actually teach them, to give them any professional uh, okay. uh, education, right? Because they were not their um, employees. And this is uh, not allowed according to the US law, right? Which okay. means that they were basically diminishing the value of their service. So quality of their service was yes. just bad. Okay. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. And this came from... I guess a lack of training, but also on the other hand, by just not like if you let your suppliers bid against each other, it's always price that wins and not quality. You will never be able to assess the quality, which means that for the suppliers being able to win, they would just need to have low qualified to unqualified people doing the work or even not even making it possible for their people to do good work because the budget is so low. Exactly, right? They would tell them, yeah, you have to finish this in half an hour instead of one hour because otherwise the math doesn't work for us. Yeah. So the way you set incentives and the way you set this competition, Mm -hmm. uh, it's very important. And I see a lot of startups who actually think the same way with their suppliers. Oh, let's just drive the price down instead of really carefully creating this backend experience too because it's super, super important. And I mean, if you look at it, their value proposition was... Uh, let me just read the main thing again. So it was screened, background checked, and certified professionals with high customer ratings, right? If high customer rating is a valid proposition and on the back end, you're actually you know, using freelancers who have never uh, cleaned before and you make your more professionals to bid against each other, obviously you're going against the very thing that you're promising the customers. Yeah, it sounds so logical but when you're running a high-paced growth startup you can just lose the sight of these things sometimes yeah absolutely and i mean obviously this is a labor and cost attempts business and this basically drives your your bottom line so in the end it's also logical that you have to concentrate on this but compromising on the quality is just not a way to go forward definitely I think it always comes down to um, just really understanding what you're promising to the customer and doing the research, not just with the customers, but with all stakeholders to see how you can really create a different and better quality for, 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 the, for the end user, right? So, and, yeah. and this means not just designing for users, but also designing for stakeholders. Internally, externally, sometimes this means hiring them instead of contracting them. Yeah. And sometimes it's better to contract somebody. So, it's it's not an easy solution. So I'm not saying SoulCycle is, you know, has found the solution to everything, but like, yeah. you know, applying our design mindset to the backend is, has huge benefits, huge potential for better products. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. So that was my first, uh, first example. Cool. What do you have for us, Franz? 
Actually, I have something that pretty much plays into this, what you just said, like designing for different stakeholders. And it's rather a methodology that I would like to relate later to business design, which is co-design. So designing your value proposition, really designing your concept and developing your concept together with users and with stakeholders, which is a little mm -hmm. different than, than co-creation. Like we all know and we all value um, user-centered design and everybody is keen of um, implementing users in the research phase at the very beginning and also in the testing phase, but really co-designing is, in my opinion, a whole different level. Okay, and so what does co-design mean, like specifically? How does it look like? Um, I would really say co-design is something, and I would probably say, I would even be a little bit provocative to designers. Like designers like to design for their users. And what I'm saying that co-design is, is designing with your users, mm -hmm. which means really ideating and developing something together rather than doing research, design for them and testing it later again with them, but really design with them. And this is something that really works well when talking about bringing different stakeholders to the table and really talking to them in the design process. So I can even give you an example. I think that's um, a little bit easier to understand then. Um, and I would use an example that is known probably to everybody, at least the companies, uh, Ikea. Ikea. Mm -hmm. So they do a really, really great job in research. They do these um, home reports that everybody or probably many of you have seen, but they also do great jobs in co-creation. So they really bring together um, students, fellow designers, real-world people, and they do design workshops with them uh, together. And even they do great work on following up on this. So this is a whole process. They update these people and the whole community on the process. So what's the outcomes of the co-design jams, um, of the co-design sessions? Um, is it sellable now? Um, was it stopped? This is also an opportunity. Uh, There's also a possibility. But still, they do a really, really great job in co-design, uh, in co-designing mm -hmm. with their users. One question. So I guess a lot of listeners would have the feeling that they are already doing this. Yeah. Oh, I talk to designers. I show them my um, wireframes. I show them my ideas. So yeah. that's sort of a co-design. So can you go a level deeper and just explain what exactly is co-design? Because I think there is some granularity here that we are not grasping yet. Yeah. So for me, is co-design does not mean talking to somebody up front and doing the research and then showing the designs later to them to get feedback, but really create a, a safe environment and bring this, these people even physically together. So bringing them together to a co-design um, jam, or you can also call it hackathon, or you can call it like a conference. You bring them together for like, say, three days and you design with them together, which means for designers, I think there is also a kind of a different skill set that is necessary then, because it's not that much about designing, but it's even more about facilitating, right? Mm -hmm. You have to make it possible for even non-designers that they are able to understand how the process of designing something works 
So facilitation is a really important skill when, have, when doing co-design. And that's, that's what I mean, like really working them, with them together on the concepts. So you would invite them to your office for a few days and exactly work together. So how yeah. important is who do you invite? Because I guess that is kind of a crucial decision if you want to work with somebody on something. Yeah, actually, that's a really important decision. Um, and that really plays a lot into what you said before, like thinking of a broader audience than just your user. So really thinking of who other stakeholders would be interesting um, that to have on a table just to shed light on a, on a case from different angles. Um, and there are two concepts that are well known and also that proved really effective in my form of work with um, firstly also looking in other industries. So we call them analogous fields. So thinking of not only your field that you're working in, but also completely different fields. So if you want to do something um, that, is, that has to do something with, with let's say, a take a physical product like a door, if you want to design a door for your home, so ask um, designers for cars because they have done a really good job on car doors, like how they feel, how they, um, how they, how, what noises they make when you close them. That's really something that they have done a great job in. So really also ask other fields um, to come uh, to your session and, and design with them. And the second thing, thing that I was uh, want to mention, this is probably a little bit theoretic, but think of as users having different stages and life cycles. So what you want to have is probably not the user that is not really interested in something new, but the users that are really in the forefront of um, of um, of your like product lifecycle, adaption lifecycle, they are called lead users. So you can just research on that. I don't want to elaborate on that, but it's mostly saying that there are different kinds of users and the one will be really helpful to you, which are the ones on the forefront and the other ones will probably not be. And what you want to have is these lead users that are not only opinion leaders, but even have ideas to make something better. So they will probably even have already called in so probably ask a practical um, advice, probably ask your customer service. There might be people calling in saying, hey, I have a problem with this product um, or I want to do something different. So not everybody who complains has a better idea, but some of them have. I think one additional benefit of this approach is also um, sales. I think if you do, I think, and I think we talked about it in the previous business design jam is when you do a good research for a product that you're creating uh, a lot of the time, especially if it's a B2B project through these um, co-design sessions and also just research sessions, you're getting a really good leads for who could be your customer. Absolutely. And it could be the first beta testers or also paid customers that help you uh, basically test willingness to pay, how much people are willing to pay, if they're even willing to pay for this solution. So yeah. it has additional benefit in that respect too. Absolutely. So um, I think when it comes to viability, it really helps you to bring these users in because they will tell you what they want and what's going to be viable for them um, and what they also want to uh, pay for. Cool. Um, and I even want to bring it on a, on another level, um, being the whole 
create the business business perspective. You said that you might have uh, better leads and you might have people who want to buy this thing after they have been parked. But imagine being seen as a company who co-designs. This is, even if you are not part of this co-design session and you know that this company designs their products with users and with stakeholders, you feel in the second more engaged because you feel like, oh, this company really listens to their listens to their users. They really ask their users and this is just creating trust. And I think it's creating a positive reinforcement for all the customers, even the ones that have not been part of this session. Is it in that case then important for a company to actually um, communicate the fact that this was developed together with customers? Because in the example of IKEA, Maybe I was just never aware of it, but I've never seen this being communicated to the client. Yeah, I think it is important. And I think at the same time, it is really a fine line because I think everybody has heard of the, of the negative thing of it, which is sometimes called innovation theater. So you do it just for the sake of PR. You do it just for the sake of branding. And this is where I think business design comes in. So designing something that has an impact on both like your brand, but also on the outcome of the project on the, of the product is really important because even I have been part of, of such open innovation contests that was primarily there for the fun. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is great for PR. And yes, it seems that it has, it seems that, like publicly listed companies just have to do because they, their shareholders want to see it. They ha it has to be in the yearly report and it's just important for PR. But this is a downward spiral. So I don't want to rant too much now, but yeah. just keep in mind that doing it just for the PR and not for the outcome really starts a spiral, which is you will eventually, uh, you will basically not have a product. So all the participants will not be as happy as if there is a good product. And eventually you will use, uh, you will lose um, the backing of management. So because just for PR, I think that's just too much trouble. So really keeping the balance between having PR and communicating it right and basically um, creating a bus of being a, co-designing company but also focusing on that you're really designing the method in a way that you would also have good outcome and a good product in the end is really important so Franz you, you obviously have a lot of experience with this particular um, method one question I have here is how do you have to compensate these uh, people you co-design the product with because it could feel like oh I created this product now yeah. I own it too so yeah. from just the business model and pricing perspective do yeah. you share ips at the end the intellectual property i'm i think this is really something that has to be designed and there is no right or wrong answer so there are examples like for example lego they have a huge and good co-design and co-creation platform they even share profits so if you are the one who actually brought this idea and then it gets produced, you get the share of the project, uh, the, the, um, the revenues or the, mm -hmm. the profits. On the other hand, there is also a strong opinion that 
rewarding you monetarily or giving you some kind of the IP crowds out the good motivation, which means that basically most of the work that I have done with users in co-design was giving their time and their ideas for free because what they wanted is really being part of something like this. So all the people that were, um, or most of the people that were at these co-creation sessions, they did not get any reward when it comes to money or IP. But what they wanted, obviously, was just being part of the puzzle. Like these guys, if you find the right people, they will be just absolutely happy to be part of this puzzle solving, creating something new, mm -hmm. being part, meeting interesting people. I mean, if you come together, uh, if you bring interesting people together, uh, these guys are going to have awesome fun in these three days. And this will reward them even more uh, than like giving them a share that might again feel just too minor as compared to the profit the company will make afterwards. Yeah. And I think this, this sounds like a really good filter for finding the right people to do co-design with. The yeah. ones who are just motivated by uh, a certain financial incentive are probably more in it for the business uh, yeah, incentives versus those who are really interested in this topic or a puzzle, as you said, are probably the ones who are going to give you the most valuable stuff because they're really interested in the problem itself, not yeah. just business perspective of the whole thing. Cool. Absolutely. Cool. Nice. Uh, anything else on, on this topic or do we want to move to the next one you've prepared? No, I think that's quite it with this example. All right. Should I go next? Yes, go ahead. Um, actually, we can link to it, uh, to the pricing a little bit. So we talked now about pricing. How do you basically attract users to be part of it? Now I want to talk about pricing as a customer paying for something. So just to start on a high level, um, what every for-profit company needs is customers who spend some money. Like that's just how it is. Yeah. On the other hand, <laughs> you have these customers who actually avoid spending money or who avoid spending unnecessary money. Or in other words, they consider every price against their, the value that the product or service creates for them. So what I'm trying to say is spending money kind of always feels bad for customers. So there are certain techniques for companies that... Um, basically makes it less painful for you to spend money. Obviously, if you feel like you get a lot of value out of it, then it's okay. But still, there are other ways. And now I really want to link directly again to, a, to an example just to keep it a little bit on a more graspable level. Yeah, go ahead. Again, IKEA. <laughs> so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead with this. Okay. So I've read an, a really interesting article that asked the question, of why does IKEA offer $1 hot dogs right after the cashier's desk? I've been asking myself exactly this question. It sounds, it just sounds very cheap, you know, like, yeah. okay, interesting. Yeah. So why? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so basically the whole idea after it, um, the whole idea behind it is when you think of your, customer journey when doing Ikea shopping, like you go to the store, everything looks great. You go into the store, the decoration is awesome. The, 
the products are cool, the, the, the prices are reasonable, everything is like pretty fun in there. But then like your experience drops, you have to go to the stock, you have to find your stock, you have to assemble your stock, you have to carry everything on your own to the cashier's desk and then you have to pay. And then even you have to, um, you have the choice between packing it, everything into your car or like hiring uh, the delivery service, which both are not really great options. So yeah. having said this, at the end of your journey, your feelings are at the low point. But now you're tired like, and you just yeah. want to go home, right? Exactly. And then you <laughs> and spend hungry. like, yeah. And then you spend like 700 euros on your whole thing and you have waited and you have assemblies and you have had all the hustle. And basically having this as the last experience is just not, not something that you want because you unlearn everything that was fun before. And what stays with you is having this bad experience in the end. And now just think of yourself preparing yourself to pay and then you already see these treats from the cashier's desk like you all see oh there are these nice cookies that you can buy in this small grocery and you also get one euro hot dogs so even this small trick really boosts this customer journey or these factors in the end and really intervenes in your negative experience in the end and really boosts your basically your your mood uh, which is a great small trick, I would call it, um, to really make it less of a painful experience to just spend money in the end. This reminds me of my least favorite um, paying experience, and this is restaurants. Yeah. You know, you go in, you order something, and even if the food is great, you know, like you dread that moment when the waiter comes and brings you the bill and you open it like, oh, okay. You know, like <laughs> that's definitely, and then you sometimes have to wait a very long time yeah. for, for you to get the, the bill and to, for, for the person to come back and for you to pay. And it just feels like a really bad experience most of the times. Yeah. But even then, there I was have... always just asking myself, how could this be done much better? Yeah. I don't have a solution, but obviously this is a big, it's a big problem. And that's why companies like Amazon are also investing in, uh, I think it's called one click buy or something like that. Yeah. Just to have this, this process as frictionless as possible. However, I, I also want to be aware of manipulations here a little bit, you know, like you can go the other way completely and just completely manipulate your customers into feeling great to spend money. Absolutely. And that's probably also not what you want to do because in the long term, it's going to hurt you and your brand. So, you really have to find a good balance there. Yeah, being absolutely. conscious, not hurting people when they pay, but also not making them spend too much and then feeling guilty about it. Absolutely. Like when you go on researching about this topic, like how do you make your, comp uh, your customers more eager to spend money or more like even more loyal than one thing that you arrive very quickly at is loyalty programs. And all these stuff, like just rewarding you with one-on-one -on -one money, probably even. And if you even go down further the road, you really arrive at some negative examples, like uh, that. What you have just mentioned, even making customers, let's say, addicted to your product. Like there is this um, online game that's called um, Coin Master. 
So it's really in critique what, because what they do is actually they created an online game, which is just as any other online game you would play, you would build your, you'd build your, um, you would build your village. Then somebody else can destroy your village. You have to <laughs> earn resources. You have to build something. And in the end, what you have to do is you have to buy stuff in there with imaginary coins. Obviously these imaginary coins will be gone. And meanwhile, somebody else will destroy a village. What you can do is just buy with real money imaginary coins. And this is yeah. something that they've done a great job and great, I mean, in, negative, in a ne negative way, because they're really into critique that they use like really manipulative techniques and really target like teens and children to play these games and spend a huge amount of real money, which feels fun like it's really fun to play this game to to play for these um imaginary coins and you pop in five years and then it's okay you can go on and you can save your your village so yeah. this is i think the negative road that it can uh, go down when i'm talking about make it fun to spend money but i think this is the design decision or probably even the the obligation that designers may take on to really balance this um this incentive that you give to your users to make it a positive one mm. i feel like you know a lot of these companies that are very manipulative are just very short-sighted yeah you can have a product like this or a project or even a company like this for a few years but even longer sometimes if it has monopoly but like on the long term it doesn't really sustain because you see all these negative consequences for society and people just start boycotting products like this um so i think one of the really important decisions is just not just design decisions but business decisions for any companies to make a commitment long-term commitment to be there on the long term and once you make the decision i think a lot of these decisions are much better aligned you know you're not just being incentivized to pump up numbers for the next quarter but you're yeah. really think long term for the community what's better and really trying to align these incentives in the ecosystem the best way and i'm going back to this i think like in almost every business design gem the alignment of incentives because i think it's just so crucial um yeah. but luckily there are really good examples for incentivizing by positive impact like when you go to, for example, the shoe company Tom's, you know, their yeah. concept one for one. Yeah. So this is how they started. They started with the idea of if you buy one Tom's shoe, Tom's will give one shoe to a person in need and not just distributing it, like dropping something in a region, but really researching, um, think about what shoes they need, with which purposes they will serve and really doing it thoughtfully. And they have really evolved in this and really even changed this problem and um, this, this program. And they even moved forward to a different way of spending. And what they arrived at is now this three-to-one scheme. So for every $3 or for every three euros they earn in net profit, they will give $1 away in shoes and grants. So basically mm -hmm. they have a second part of their business which is basically a charity so they really have a department and they have a chief giving officer and this oh, nice. team 
really works on research. They really work with communities in India, in Kenya, and they really do good work in this. And whenever you like buy a shoe for like 70 euros, you still know that a part of this has a good impact, which makes you feel better when spending money. It comes back to the same idea. Mm -hmm. The problem is when some companies use this just for manipulation again, you know, um, where they just put this to the forefront saying, if you buy this, we're going to also give it away in charity, but actually the whole product is being sourced uh, in the wrong way yeah. and all of that stuff. So I think as, as also customers become more conscious and we understand better the whole story of the company, we can see right through those stories, hopefully, you know, and help each other find those stories that are not really genuine. Uh, we can weed out which ones, you know, because we are actually as customers, we are kind of voting with our dollars or euros. When you yeah. buy something, you vote for this company to stay on the market longer. Uh, and it's important for us also to, yeah, in a way support these stories, but also see which stories are genuine and which, and which are not. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you have more to add here, but actually my second example goes very much into the direction of pricing too. So maybe let, let me just dock onto this and we can continue the, the discussion. Yeah, great. And uh, uh, the same way you used Ikea twice, I'm going to use SoulCycle twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we talked about the pricing and alignment of incentives. And one another thing I found really uh, nicely or beautifully done in their business model was the way you pay for their classes. So traditionally, if you go to a especially big uh, fitness chain or gym chain, the way they try to sell you the, the ticket is there's a subscription, there's a monthly subscription, or even there's like a yearly or two yearly contract. So you find you, you sign this contract and then you can use it. You can use this gym for as long as you want. However, the, the way this whole business model is was calculated by people like us, the business designers, unfortunately, uh, is that they bank or they, they hope that most people will never come. Yeah. Meaning we basically sell or we oversell the capacity and hopefully you will not show up. And that's also what airlines do. Uh, and obviously this is bad because the incentive of the gym or the fitness company in this case is for you not to be in the gym, for you not yeah. to be in shape, for you not to utilize the thing you paid for. That's why they're yeah. very happy when people do not show up. Um, so what SoulCycle has done again is really align this incentive in a really good way. And they have this model call, called paper class, meaning you pay only for the class you take. It's a little bit more expensive. I mean, it's not cheap at all. Like, uh, currently, if you go to uh, their New York class, um, so I think it's $34 per class, right? Uh, but the incentive for them is for you to have such a good experience that you have to basically book the next slot and pay for the next slot each time. So they're yeah. committed to giving you the best experience after each visit. And this really speaks volume to just how committed they are to great experience and how bold they are in believing that you will come back. And yeah. also the founders were talking in these interviews. I read that everybody told that they were, they said that they were crazy. You know, this is not the way to yeah. run a gym uh, because you have at this, at this moment, like their competitor called flywheel 
charges $375 per month. Yeah. Meaning I can pay $375 and come every single day to the spinning class. Yeah. And if I would do this, I would basically pay $375 at Flywheel. And if I would go to Soul Cycle every day, I would pay $1,020. Obviously, you do not go to yeah. uh, spinning class every day, but still, like, it just gives you how bold they were in believing that they can actually do a better job. Hmm. And a big, maybe broader lesson here is that right now a subscription is very sexy. Like every yeah. designer, also business designers a lot of the times, every entrepreneur is thinking, how can I create you know, the best subscription service? Yeah. And <laughs> manipulate basically customers into having certain subscriptions also to the products and especially to the products that do not fit. And what happens yeah. in those cases is, you know, you have a lot of people just dropping out, churning, yeah. so to say. Yeah. And I think, again, it's very important to find the right alignment of incentives and the pricing model. Absolutely. I mean, in a way that subscription is, is a great thing, like especially for a business perspective, like your company just gets a whole different valuation if you have like yes. people having subscribed to something the longer the better like telecommunications company i think they do the best job in this like they they give you a phone and then you're bound for two or three years like this yeah. is great from a business perspective but how much do you like the service this telecommunication company provides to you while you have this subscription because i don't because you wait in line for like 50 minutes if you want to talk to somebody. I'm exaggerating now. What I want to say is that basically you challenge your own company providing a better product. Because if you have your people subscribed, then you don't have to have this awesome product anymore because they can't mm -hmm. leave. Exactly. Funny you mentioned the communication companies. So uh, five, I think I signed my last contract with a communication company five years back, meaning right now I do have a, uh, a plan, you know, like a subscription plan. No, no it's not, a, yeah, in a way it's a subscription, but I'm not bound, you know, I don't have a long-term contract. Yeah. So meaning I can leave every month. What happened during these five years is that each year I get one call from them asking Hey, are you willing to sign one year contract and we give you, you know, two, two to three dollars euros cheaper per month yeah. every single year, you know? And I always tell them, no, I'm fine. Because <laughs> I never know really, I don't want to be bound to a bad service. I just really want to see how it goes. Maybe I also move somewhere, etc. But having this flexibility obviously costs me, but I think it also keeps them on their toes to, to have a better service. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's also very much relatable to online courses, if you want to take on this example. Sure, yeah. I mean, we all know these mass online courses that are basically scalable to an amount that nobody can imagine because everything is just, you just read or listen to something and then you Infinity, take quizzes. Yeah. Exactly. So you can bring on how as many people as you want and it's perfectly scalable but in the end, nobody finishes these, these courses because they're just not designed in a way that you can or that you're basically supported in. Of course, if you're really diligent, you were able, but it's not really designed 
as a finisher course. Yeah. Rather having something that is designed that really supports you, like having mentors or having people who really take you on the hand and really challenge you and really help you in completing this course is completely different quality of product, but obviously it's not that scalable. It's not that of a um, growth business anymore. So here I think exactly. we see the whole same, um, the whole same uh, trade-off that you just mentioned with the SoulCycle example. Mm -hmm. It's the same with books. Like, you know, you can print or audio books. You can, you know, download as many audio books as possible. Like, but then how many people do finish books versus somebody actually going to uh, take a language class or whatever the, you know, a lot of times the physicality of certain courses also gives you this incentive to finish. And um, it just gives you a different experience. And I think it, it also you as a designer or founder just makes you think differently about a product long-term and also just create much more even in the future you do decide to grow and change a few things like in the beginning if you make conscious decisions to just focus on the product and make the decisions that are better aligned with the value for stakeholders in the ecosystem i think on the long term you're just building a much better business good i i don't have more to add anything else on your mind not really i think that was great Yeah, I think so too. So thanks, Franz, for joining us and sharing your examples. Thank you for having me. Cool. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or comments, like if you want to talk to me or Franz, you can also find us on LinkedIn. So for the exact links, you can go to the description of this podcast or also to beyondusers.com slash podcast and just find our links on LinkedIn. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, Just this week, we're opening the early applications for the next DMBA. So if you're interested, definitely check out beyondusers.com slash apply and just fill out the application. And if you're a good fit, you will have a call with Franz or me uh, where we basically can answer your questions about the course and also see if you're the right fit for the cohort of 30 students, 30 designers who will be part of the DMBA for. And if you would like to hear from previous participants how how their experience of the DMBA was like and what they think about DMBA. Here's also two audio snippets from the previous DMBA students, basically our alumni. So first you will hear from Paulina, who works for Cisco, and then you will hear from Suzanne, who is a freelancer based in London. One of the things that I liked most about the program was the community. Because uh, you might feel like, oh, I'm an online course, I might do all this by myself, but actually uh, we are together in a social channel. And it feels pretty natural to jump there and ask questions. And, you know, discussions happen organically. So I think MBA has a really good balance between individual and social learning. I think that was great. You know how in design we're quite comfortable, like really obsessing about the detail, but at the same time also zooming right back out again and like looking at it from like the top, from like the systems level. Well, DMBA is a bit like that and it takes you out into that um, viability space and then um, all the way back down again to the, to the level that we're most comfortable with, the user experience or desirability level.